Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Unexpected Points. We have the entire Week 9 review, including my adjusted game scores. We have a few uh, different groups that are going to be on notice after this week, and we have another successful week of best bets that I will break down for you. Thank you so much for tuning in, and let's get to it. Okay, everybody. Week 9 is in the books. We, I'm going to go through the games here, starting with some of the last games, some of the island games, the evening games, and then we'll proceed through to the rest of them, hitting a few topics, a few rants, if you will, as we go through on different subject matters. I'm going to stick with the headline and alternative headline format that I came out with last week as I try to figure things out here as we're going along this season. So I hope you uh, appreciate I'm iterating on, on some of that there. Um, for all the different games. Uh, We have quite a few to cover, so we might as well just hop right into it at this point. Although I will mention, right before I start, promo code UNEXPECTED, 25% off PFF subscription. Uh, I'm not going to belabor that point, though, but it does help show support for the pod. All right, let's get into immediately Monday Night Football. For those of you who stuck through to the end on this, and it ended up being a close game, there were multiple times I I was praying and hoping that the Steelers could do something to end up um, putting this game away. And then when they had the fumble on the punt return for the touchdown, I kind of knew that was over. So I, like many of you, stuck it through until the end. Of course, you look at the score. It is 29-27, a win for the Steelers. And I would say the headline on this one is kill the refs. My alternative headline would be Both of these teams really weren't good, so who cares about the refs? I'll get more into my ref rant a little bit later. Uh, Let's let's set the other particulars for this game. Pittsburgh closed as a seven-point favorite in this one. Uh, My adjusted score has the Bears as being the better team, 24 to 18. So that's a pretty significant flip around, although I don't think it necessarily um, contrasts with popular opinion out there since there's so much focus on what was going on with the refs there and you know much more focus on that than there was on the fumbled punt which is returned for a touchdown which was the most impactful play in the game you know more than twice as impactful as any other play that happened in that game now I discussed um, some different leans that I was not taking as part of the best bet segment last week Uh, going over everything on Fridays. This was one that did point towards the Bears as being a play. I believe at that time, though, it was only five and a half or six. And, uh, you know, the line moved against it, but this would have been not only one that hit, but one that should have hit easily, according to the numbers. So I was a little bit wrong fading this one. Uh, My concern in this game, and it didn't come to play that much, was what Fields is going to be able to do against the Blitz in this game. Uh, Pittsburgh did Blitz a bit. Pittsburgh did get decent... Uh, pressure rate, the pressure rates were up into the 30-40% sort of area. But Fields did a good job at not taking a lot of sacks. And I think what he did in this game, if you watched it, he was quick to run, especially early. And while you don't like to see that as the default for a quarterback to run, I think in some ways it's smart. If you're not good at quick game and it seems like Fields, that may not be his forte. He's not going to be like Andy Dalton was the first few games of the season, throwing the ball out and getting his um, his time to throw in under 
2.2 seconds like Dalton was in many of these games. That's just not going to be what, what Fields does. So in those situations, when he goes back, he looks, rather than trying to go through the progressions and get it off quickly, move to a second or third progression, he decided to run quickly. And if you look at, especially the beginning of the game, as I mentioned, 13, first 13 dropbacks of the game, he had um, he had seven I'm sorry, he had six sacks or scrambles as part of that. He took two sacks, he had four scrambles, and then he had seven pass attempts. So almost half of the time, he was not throwing the ball. And he, he continued with a couple more um, scrambles later, but that went way, way, way down on those last few drives where he looked really good in the second half, that they were executing the offense a lot better. He only was sacked one more time on an... Uh, actually, he was only sacked one more time on an attempted scramble, and I think he only scrambled it once or twice more during that game. So not nearly as much as he was in the first half. And I want to talk about the numbers here because the numbers were really, really good for Fields. So again, Fields Apologist, who I came after um, a couple weeks ago. You know, I'm going to give him props when, he, when he's good. Now, was he as good as our grading says? I don't think so. Although I guarantee the Justin Fields Apologentia out there is not going to complain about the grading here on on Fields. He had an 89.8 grade, offensive grade in this game. That's a huge grade. I mean, that's, you know, 90. When you get around 90, we're talking about top quarterback in the NFL type of grade. Uh, Ben was bad, maybe not as bad as some people think. He had a 60 grade, which was pretty bad. But then when we flip over to EPA per place, if you look at their actual efficiency, um, it was about zero for each of them. Now, Fields' does include a somewhat random pick, uh, the pick that was that was caught and intercepted by the defensive tackle, uh, Cam Hayward, on that play. So if you remove that, it bumps them up to about 0.1 EPA per play, which is an okay outcome. But again, it's kind of like an averageish sort of game, a little bit better than averageish sort of, sort of game. So there is a little contrast here between Fields and the 90 grade and the efficiency, which is more average. And I'm going to I'm going to talk about that a bit more because I think it's going to help us digest what to think about for Justin Fields going forward. So I mentioned the lack of quick game and substituting the scrambles for the quick game. So if it reminds me a little bit of Fields and this is this is a rough comparison. I'm not going to try to, you know, do too much of this, oh, this player equals that player. But I think it's a helpful way to think think through things. I mentioned before how I thought that he was similar in some ways to, to Michael Vick, the way he was the best athlete on the field. We didn't see those types of plays this game, but we did see some, he was quick to, to scramble and to move there. Um, what I saw here and what I'm seeing with the fact that he had the four big-time throws, yet not really that great of efficiency, even when you take out his one random-ish sort of mistake, it's giving me a little bit of Russell Wilson type of vibes. And the reason that I say that is not to say that he plays like Wilson or similar Wilson, but there are some similarities there. But I'm just trying to think of these paradigms for different players. Now, Wilson is a great paradigm for a player who can get really, really high grades, but then, or really, really high CPOE also, completion percentage over expectation, which again, in this game, Fields was 10% over expectation because he had 
a you know 13A dot, and he was making very, very difficult throws, even though he only had a 60% completion percentage, it was more like 50 based upon the throws that he was making. He was making such difficult throws. So the ability to make really, really difficult throws, including on the run, including moving both directions, in that way, I do see this Wilson-ish sort of thing to what Fields is doing. But the inability, at least so far in his career, and we're early, you know, we don't want to write anything off, of course, uh, the inability so far to do some of the easier stuff is something that's going to hurt him from an efficiency standpoint, from a real world effect standpoint, more than it's going to hurt him from our, for, from our grading standpoint, because our grading is going to mostly give zeros on these sorts of a well-executed quick game. Um, so you're not going to get highs or lows on that. And then we're going to give a lot of credit to those big time throws. And that's what Fields is really, really good at. And again, when it comes to sacks, Fields didn't take a, a whole lot of sacks here. He had three sacks and he lost about four expected points, so about a four point loss on that, which is, you know, not, not, not awful. No fumbles this time. Uh, not, not good, not awful. Um, but he's going to have that, right? So that's going to be a little bit of a weight on his performance as it is for someone like Russell Wilson or someone who takes a lot of sacks. You're going to have a little bit of a down drag always from the sacks and you're going to have a little bit of a down drag from the fact that you're not just getting easy, easy EPA, easy yards, easier conversions. You're doing it in a more difficult way, which looks good, but doesn't necessarily translate into and it looks good even on a yards per attempt. I mean, a 10 yards per attempt in this game. That's a huge number. But it doesn't necessarily translate into the EPA when you need to be able to convert shorter third downs. You need to be able to do a bunch of other things that are going to come through more in the advanced metrics like EPA. So it's something to, 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 to think about for fields going forward. Again, great game. I don't want to take away from that, but I also want to focus on what you may not be thinking about coming out of these games to have a more accurate representation and and paradigm of a player going forward. And I'd say that's it for, for Justin Fields. Now let me give a, now it's time for rants. Sorry, you can, uh, you can hit plus, you know, go 30 seconds ahead on your podcasting app for this one if you want to skip it. But I was getting a little tilted last night, and I know that it's a little bit weird to be upset about other people being upset, but that's kind of my my shtick. And there were two things that got to me last night, and these are not new things that are getting to me. The first thing was the incessant complaining about the refs. Now, it had an impact. Don't get me wrong. The DPI had an impact. The taunting call that everyone's going to be going insane on uh, still this morning had an impact, had a big impact. As I said... I, my adjusted numbers had the Bears being six points better, and they lost by two points. And a lot of that has to do with those penalties. Some of it has to do with the interception with, with fields. That was a little bit random, but a lot of it has to do with, with those penalties. So I get it. It had an impact. But at the same time, I think when we're viewing these things, and this – a lot. I think we have to view it through the context of randomness in some ways. Random plays happen where players are not trying to, you know, Ray Ray McLeod is not trying to fumble the ball and then have it returned for a touchdown. That happens, right? There is variance. Refereeing is another form of variance. I think very often what the problem is people think that it's much more controllable than it is. 
but mistakes are going to happen and they're going to be randomly distributed and random distributions often look like clustering to people. So then people try to have explanations. I mean, I don't think anyone legitimately thinks the referees were biased against the bears, but it comes through as that type of feeling, that type of sentiment when people are complaining about it. So I think in a way, it's not that you should never complain about the refereeing, but I think looking for perfection there would be the same thing as assuming that a quarterback's never going to throw, uh, have a game where they throw a couple of interceptions, assuming that there's never going to be a random fumble there, assuming that there's never going to be a missed kick there. We have this perception that the refereeing is much more controllable as we are watching it, as we're slowing down every single play, as we're getting the perfect camera angle for what's going on. And this is just a very, very difficult job for these refs. Now, specifically when it comes to taunting, I think the problem more so is that we have to look at penalties. We have to look at the amount of the penalty that we're talking about here. An automatic 15 yards and an automatic first down is just too much on these sorts of taunting penalties. I think either we need to have a, a warning, a formal warning and during the game and then a penalty, not per player, but maybe per team, or we need to lower that amount so that if we have a sack like we, ha we have last night, you don't get the automatic first down after the play is basically dead and there's a taunting call on that play. Um, but by the technical definition, I do believe walking over, staring at the bench and looking at while the players are coming on the field probably does fit into the technical definition of taunting. So I, I, I don't think we want to say, hey, refs, use better judgment. Hey, refs, don't call it in this circumstance, but call it in that circumstance. We don't want to bring more and more subjectivity. Rules are best when they are objective and they are applied universally across the board, no matter the, the, the circumstance, no matter the team, no matter the player, no matter everything else. That's the ideal that we're looking for. So I don't so we're always blaming these refs for wanting to insert themselves when in reality they are trying as best they can, whether you think so or not, to adjudicate the game as the rules ask them to do. And we should be better about how we either make the rules or how we're able to use review and other aspects to correct that. But just to assume that we're not gonna have mistakes, assume that this is very much controllable. It's no more controllable than a lot of randomness. And I think if people just viewed the officiating as more of random mistakes that sometimes cluster, maybe we'd feel a little bit less aggrieved when something like that ends up happening. Uh, the other thing that I have a little mini rant on this game is the play calling the in, just incessant complaining about the play calling and Justin Fields and why are they putting him in a situation? I think sometimes we, we, we can't just take the easy way out on these things. We can't say the results are bad. I have two different ways I can look at this. I can pile on to the coaches that everyone is piling on to, or I can say, well, maybe they're, you know, maybe Fields has some problems executing the quick game. Maybe there is some things going on defensively that that's happening. You know, maybe, you know, play just doesn't work this time, but then works that time. I mean, there were a lot of big plays that Fields made later on in the game. You know, no one's giving credit to the coaches there for, for calling those plays. No one's saying, oh, man, great uh, second half there by uh, Laser and, and, and Nagy. No, they're just giving credit to, to Justin Fields. So I think, you know, a lot of the times it's just like taking the easy way out on some of these things. We have to be a little bit more critical of what we're doing. And it's, it's like the fourth down thing. When the fourth down isn't successful, we, bl we blame the play call and not the decision on there. Um, or we assume that, you know, it's, it's just so easy for all of us. And it's especially jarring to me as being someone who's an analytics guy because there's this thing about the tone of analytics or our 
arrogance in not assuming that coaches know what they're doing. But in reality, we're looking at these macro trends. We're looking at bigger things. Like if we're saying you should pass the ball more often on second and long, I don't think that's actually being as arrogant as it is to critique play calling because I'm talking about individual plays and what's in like scheming and whether they know that this player should be better than that. I think that's a lot more arrogant in my mind because it's like saying back in the day, if you said the NBA should shoot more three pointers, that was being arrogant. I mean, coaches are dealing more in the minutia. They're dealing more in the matchup sort of things that people were complaining about when it comes to fields last night. They're spending 99% of their time in that sort of stuff. So when you're critiquing that, you're critiquing what was 99% of the focus of these coaches. That seems much, much more arrogant to me than it is for us to talk about modeling that we've done or ideas on macro ideas where coaches don't spend nearly as much time looking at it because they are using their instincts and they're going on tradition and they're going on the path of least resistance to continue doing things the way that they've been doing them there. So we are critiquing them on things that they're not studying in detail while all these play calling um, critiques and what they should be doing with fields and how they should be lining up this guy and that guy and what sort of role you should be rolling them out more often. Of course, they roll them out later and TJ Watt sacks them. It's like, well, you should have blocked TJ Watt. It's like, well, you know, you leave the end uncovered because you're hoping a guy like Justin Fields can make one guy miss and that'll give you a numbers advantage, right? But Watt was all over it because they know that that's something that's good for fields to do. So anyway, I'm not saying the play calling can't be bad, but I think if we're going to talk about what's arrogant, if we're going to talk about having a little overconfidence, I think it's much more likely we're overconfident critiquing coaches on what they spend 99% of their time doing and thinking about than critiquing coaches on these larger macro issues that they haven't really analyzed in a more comprehensive way. All right, rant over. Next game. Uh, Titans at LA Rams, 28-16 Titans, seven points uh, Rams were favored by this game. I think it was six and a half, and then it went up to seven at some point. Or did it go up to seven and a half? I think I should know. No, check that. It went up to seven and a half and then back down to seven. Uh, so the adjusted score, 23-19 Tennessee. So a little bit closer, you know, a little bit lower score for Tennessee and a little bit higher score for the LA Rams. Uh, the headline on this game would be Titans didn't miss Derrick Henry. Maybe that's not the headline on this game. I'm, I'm putting it on there. I'm not sure what the headline on this game is, honestly. Um, I think it's like Titans are good. Like we need to really pay attention to the Titans. So maybe that's a better headline for them. My alternative headline is the Titans offense struggled and I'm not, I'm not anointing them at this point. So if we look at this game, I mean, the success rates on offense were basically equal. 44% success rate for the Titans, 43% for the, for the Rams. The run and drop back efficiency, if we look at them from a percentile, so a 0 to 100 percentile, how good were the Titans in this game? Their run efficiency was at a 40th percentile, which includes a, a Tannehill touchdown on, on fourth down on a, on a designed run, which was the naked bootleg. And their dropback efficiency was only the 25th percentile. So not, not very good. Again, this was not a great performance for this Titans offense. So I don't want to think about them as being an offense that necessarily can hang with all of these other teams. Uh, Tannehill did have an 82 grade in this game. Tannehill is another one of these guys who kind of breaks our grading system by making a lot of these high-end high, high end throws. Uh, but he took sacks. He only had a 5.3 yards per attempt, a 4.3 A dot, 
and he did have an interception on a turnover-worthy play. So I think generally that 82 grade is overstating what, what he did in this game. There were a few bad drops, so that's what gives him credit. A.J. Brown in particular uh, dropped in conversion on a third down twice, I believe. So there were those bad drops, which could have helped them quite a bit um, in, in their scoring here. Now, for Stafford, it's, you know, we saw the pick six. We saw the other interception that was right near the end zone. Negative 13 EPA, so about 13 points were lost on those interceptions. 52 grade for him, which is his worst on the season. Yet, there were some indications that this could happen in his grading. Not in his EPA per play, where he was head and shoulders above everyone else in his efficiency coming into this game. But he was 12th in a PFF grade coming into this. That's why I like to mix those two metrics. It gives you a good idea of things that may be missing from grading are part of EPA or part of the efficiency metric. Things that may be missing from the efficiency metric are part of the grading. So those two together are more powerful than uh, predicting results going forward than, than either by themselves. So he was 12th coming into this game. Uh, so that was a little bit of a signal of maybe he's not playing on the same sort of head and shoulders above everyone else in the league level that his efficiency would have indicated. Um, but I don't want to underplay the Titans' success, right? We saw it. They beat the Bills. They beat the Chiefs. They beat the Colts. They beat the Rams. Uh, the context, though, that we're going to have to think about is their adjusted score differential which is taking all of my adjusted scores. And again, let me maybe restate these adjusted scores because I'm not sure I went into it up top, and I should probably do that if there's anyone on YouTube who's new to the game listening to this. The adjusted scores look more at success rate versus some of the outlier plays that deal with efficiency. It accounts for turnover-worthy plays versus actual turnovers. It accounts for drops. Um, it's going to downweight special teams and penalties, uh, each one of these are adjusted based upon a factor of randomness that happens and how sustainable these things are going forward. And that's why I come up with my adjusted scores. Okay, with that whole preamble there for this part of the analysis, the context here for the Titans is so far this season, they have a positive 3.2 average adjusted score differential, which, you know, isn't bad, um, which is good. It's eighth overall. But it's been against a pretty middling strength of schedule, despite the fact that they had these these last four games, which they've played well in those four games. Um, so it's not necessarily something that's going to show up in the rest of the season. Maybe they have a legitimate chance of getting that number one seed at this point because they have the easiest strength of schedule in the NFL going forward. I mentioned this somewhat last week on the pod, multiple Texans games and so on. They're, they have they have like a lot of easy games to win the rest of the season. So they could still slide into that number one spot. But again, they're, how well they've actually played this season, adjusting for strength of schedule. Um, we ha- I'm going to widen it out a little bit and not just assume you beat four good teams in a row. That means you're the best team in the NFL. I'm still saying this is probably a team creeping now into the top five, but not crowning them or not anointing them. We'll see if anyone has them at the top of quote unquote power rankings uh, this week, which I think would be a little bit ridiculous because if, if they were on a neutral field against multiple teams in the NFL, at least a few teams in the NFL, they would not be favored in those games. Okay, before I get on to the next games, now that I've uh, flown through the some of the island games let's hit the good old sponsors first i want to mention DraftKings, and i'm going to be talking about 
best bets as I continue to go through here, which of course are for in, uh, entertainment purposes only, although we've been successful, no losing weeks. Uh, NFL fans, hungry for a big win this week. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game. And if they do, you win $200 in free bets. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play huge cash prizes in daily fantasy. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. All righty. Let's get into some of the morning games, some of the more important ones or interesting ones for me, at least. The Battle of Ohio, the Browns at Cincinnati Bengals. This was a little bit of a wipeout, but I want to talk about some of the underlying stuff here. 41 to 16, the Cleveland Browns win. Cincinnati Bengals ended up a two-point favorite going into this one as the home team. My adjusted score, a little bit closer. Uh, I have 17 points for the Bengals, which is close to their 16, but then I only have 28 points for Cleveland. And I'll discuss why. But still a solid 11-point adjusted score differential. So the headline in this game is going to be the Browns' passing game doesn't need Odell Beckham Jr. My alternative headline is Browns win in all phases of the game. That's what's really important in this one. I talked last week about how I think it was overstated that Baker Mayfield needs perfect circumstances to win, everything perfect around him to win, that as long as he has average or good circumstance around him. He gives the team a good chance of winning. In this game, he kind of did have perfect everything around, around him in this one. But they wiped out. You know, they, they wiped him out. So he also was was a good, he also played well himself. He wasn't poor. This was not a poor quarterback performance being dragged forward by perfection. But he did have perfection around him in this particular game. Now, the success rates were roughly equal, and that's why the scoring differential by my adjusted scores, which, again, are heavily weighted on success rate as opposed to, uh, I mean, they do account for the out, more of the outlier plays, but we had a lot of outlier plays in this particular game because the Browns' efficiency results on offense was a 95th percentile, and the Bengals were in the 4th percentile, despite the fact that they were roughly successful on the same percentage of their plays. And why did that happen? Well, the Browns had the huge run by Nick Chubb, the 60-something yard run by Nick Chubb. They had the huge pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones on offense. And then if you flip around on the other side, the turnovers were killer for, for Burrow. Negative uh, 12 EPA on that pick six. The most costly play, I believe, of the entire NFL season, 99 or 100. I'm not sure if it was 100 or 99-yard return by Denzel Ward. He had a negative 5.6 EPA on another pick that Denzel Ward, again, we're going to talk about him a little bit later um, when it comes to going forward, how we're, how we're thinking about him. He deflected a slant to Jamar Chase, which was then picked. And then Jamar Chase fumbled after a reception. Uh, a lot of bad things were happening around Jamar Chase in this game because Chase was involved in all three of those big negative plays. Not to say that any of them, other than the fumble, were necessarily his fault, but 
there could be an element of, of forcing him the ball there, especially when you have T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd and other C.J. Uzama, who I think I'm saying that correctly now, uh, all those different guys that could get more involved. You know, the biggest play for the Bengals, they just didn't have those upside big plays that he'd been getting. As I mentioned in the Ravens game a couple of weeks ago, they had big play after big play after big play floating that offense. The biggest play they had here was a 2.5 EPA game. So just not, you know, weren't getting, they were getting, you know, plays of six, seven, eight EPA sometimes on, on big plays before. So I think another kind of alternative headline for this one, and I'm not sure it's going to flow through enough because there's been this like built up skepticism with some of the failures that the Browns have had to win games against the Chiefs, to win games against the Chargers. But according to my adjusted score, they were better in both of those games to lose to the Steelers. Again, according to my adjusted scores, they were better in that game. So I think the Browns being for real is a really is an interesting subplot here to think about. I, I'm trying not to be biased towards the Browns because I love their their way they've approached things with the coaching and with the front office and my man Sashi again. I'll point back at the angel looking over my shoulder here if you're watching on YouTube. Um but the numbers are the numbers, and they are six in the NFL right now in their adjusted point differential. So if you look at their adjusted scores, uh, on an average, they are more than three, they're 3.8 points better on average this season than their opponents, which is better than the Titans, who we just talked about earlier, with roughly a similar schedule. They're second in the AFC <clears throat> behind only the Bills, higher than the Ravens, higher than the Titans. At this point, I'm not saying they're necessarily better than those teams, but the defense, when it comes to play, you have the upfront and now you have the back end. You saw the additions of Greg Newsom playing well. You saw, obviously, uh, you know, Denzel Ward and, and the way that he can play if he can stay healthy. If they can keep this back end healthy and Miles Garrett and other guys healthy up front, it is a difficult defense to deal with. And it is an offense which can, you know, the big play, you could say, oh, maybe that's not that's sustainable having that level of big plays. I agree. It's not sustainable having that level of big plays, but it is a big play offense. The way that they run things, the way that they run this uh, play action shot, take taking shots offense and Baker Mayfield Mayfield, that's something he can do. Uh, Denzel Ward. I want to talk about him because we just saw that Wyatt uh, Teller was resigned to a huge contract for a guard and the, Browns already had the most costly offense in the NFL when it comes to cap space, the amount that they're spending. And you add now uh, Teller to the mix. You add a potential contract for Baker Mayfield going forward. At the very least, he's going to be playing on the fifth-year option next year, which will boost him up over $20 million a year. Uh, you got a lot of cost going on here. Now, they, they do have Beckham off the books. They may have Landry off the books. I think that's probably the one place we're going to want to look at as how are they going to make up for the fact that they're going to pay Teller. They probably think keeping Teller as part of that unit is worth more to us than continuing to make Jarvis Landry a top 10 receiver in what we are paying him. That is more replaceable. They had big snap shares for Anthony Schwartz, the rookie, and Donovan Peoples-Jones, the second-year player. Those are two guys that are extremely cheap who they can keep going forward and maybe fill in a type of slot option on top of that. So I could see that might be the biggest factor. But it also made me think about Ward a little bit because with all the talk of the Baker Mayfield contract and the Baker Mayfield extension and what are you going to do with Baker Mayfield, remember Denzel Ward was that same draft class. They could have 
extended him already in this offseason. He was eligible for an extension. He was the number four overall pick. And I think that might be complicating things more than anything else. He was the first defensive player drafted in that 2018 draft. So the complication, I believe, is how can we make this work? Ward is a good player, but in my opinion, I'm not sure he was really justified as being a top five pick. I don't see him as a Jalen Ramsey type of talent. That's someone you could put into that into that category as clearly someone you pay top money to and you don't really worry about it, um, or you draft in the top five and you don't really worry about it. I'm not sure if Ward is quite there. He's a great man cover. He's a little bit undersized, which might get overrated, the the size element. Um, But there's also, you know, we've seen him get mossed at times. And we've seen him have injury problems and miss games. Availability is an important component of this also. So I think that might be the the sticking point here. If they could get him on a contract like, let's say, Tredavious White signed as a middle, late, first-round pick, if they can get him on that type of deal, I think they would take that. Will Ward accept that as a player who was a top-five pick in the past? And this goes into a little bit of the problem when we talk about, well, we're just going to take Ward here at four rather than trade back at the time and maybe get him a little bit later, is you are setting a precedent which has problems in the future where these guys want to be extended at the contract amount commensurate with the overpay that you that you did in the draft. Um, so Ward should also be uh, uh, something that's being talked about out there because he had an excellent game, as I mentioned. Not only the pick six, he had a pass defended on T. Higgins, who's a big pass breakup on T. Higgins, who's obviously a huge, big receiver, much, much bigger than Denzel Ward. He had that in the end zone, and then he had the tip to Jamar Chase, which then ended up being intercepted uh, by another defender. So Denzel Ward, something to think about looking forward into the future. Okay. Vikings at Baltimore Ravens. Entertaining game. 34-31. Ravens win in overtime. Ravens were a seven-point favor, so the Vikings get the cover there. My adjusted score is a little bit wider than the final score. 33-23 Ravens. I wouldn't say you were necessarily unlucky if you bet on the Ravens in this game, but I do have a 10-point differential versus a seven-point differential and a lower score for Minnesota. They're a couple of obvious reasons why, but let me talk about my headline, alternative headlines first. The headline for this one is, Ravens come from behind and can win multiple ways. We've seen now a few times this season that Lamar Jackson can, can come from behind. My alternative headline would be, you know, should we be excited about the fact that they are coming from behind so often? You know, to come from behind, that means you're behind. I get it. You want to see them win different ways. You don't want to see the same disappointment in the playoffs, but I would rather see a team be ahead the entire way and have that ability to come from behind. would be nice, but you don't have to do it so often. And this is another game where they could have lost. They could have lost this game. They could have lost the KC game that they ended up winning. Those are two games that they came from behind. There's a third one that escapes me now, but you know, getting these wins in these circumstances might actually lead to overrating the team a little bit here, even though people think that it's checking a box for a way that they could not win before, which I'm not sure if they really couldn't win that way before as much as there was just so few instances that they were coming from behind when Lamar Jackson was playing at an MVP level, especially in 2019. 
Um, yeah, so when we think about the Ravens, they have the ninth best adjusted score differential so far this year, 2.6. So they're behind Buffalo, they're behind Cleveland, and they're actually behind Denver, <laughs> the Denver Broncos. I don't know who's going to say they're a worse team than the Denver Broncos, but hey, our Broncos came through for us with the best bet that I'll talk about a little bit later in this game. Um, so why why is the adjusted score lower in particular for the Vikings? Well, they had the kick return touchdown, um, which was kind of a random play. They, you know, converted a, a fourth down on a weird kick play. Um, what was strange about this game is the Vikings offense started off hot 14-3, and then they just kind of died. So again, you had the comeback, I agree, from the Ravens, but some of it is about the Vikings offense dying outside of that um, kick return for them to start the second half. Um, the Vikings even had better efficiency, which is a little bit weird on offense because they had some big plays. They had a big touchdown to Justin Jefferson. They had a big run with Dalvin Cook, but their success rate was only 38% versus 56 for the Ravens. So it's very, very strong numbers for the Ravens. The Ravens ran 89 plays to only 52 plays, um, but they had negative 12 EPA on the interceptions, and that's what also helped keep things close. Now, Kirk Cousins actually ended this game with better grade and better efficiency, although he was clearly not, hashtag not good, especially in the second half. Um, he he continues to break all advanced metrics, though, in putting him up near the top so that people on Twitter will yell at nerds. Uh, next game here, we're finally getting to one of our best bets for the week. Denver Broncos at Dallas Cowboys, 30-16 to 16 Denver Broncos. Dallas was a 10-point favorite. Adjusted score, 27-5. to 5. So worse, much worse score for the Cowboys and what they actually did and ding 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 winner here Denver plus 10 was a was a best bet for me the headline here is the best offense in football shut down at home my alternative headline is hey let's give the Broncos some credit they are not tanking and they are legitimately in the hunt for the playoffs and that's something that people didn't quite understand after the Vaughn Miller trade as they thought that maybe they're just we should put a tanking variable on them and assume they're not they're not coming to play. They are still coming to play. They have a 37% implied playoff probability, according to betting markets. That was up from 30% prior to the game. So it was still pretty strong prior to the game. Teddy Bridgewater, people are saying, ah, oh, you know what, trade this guy away. Get whatever picks you can from the Saints. I don't know, what are you going to get from the Saints? A third-round pick or something? If that, Teddy is fifth in EPA per play this season. I know, I know. Only 16th in passing grade, so... He hasn't been the fifth best quarterback in the NFL. Don't get me wrong, but has he been a top half quarterback in the NFL? I think he has. And, you know, look at what's happening with Darnold uh, with the Panthers. You know, Teddy Bridgewater gives you a chance when you have other things working. And obviously the Broncos had a lot of things working in this one. So the Cowboys, why is their adjusted score only five versus the 16 points that they scored? Well, if you're paying attention to this game, they had zero points for the first 55 minutes and change in this game. They scored in the last two drives, which I have no idea why Dak Prescott is playing at this point. A guy that was just, just sat out after a bye. He couldn't play last week. He had health, couldn't play last week because of a bye, yet we have him in this game where they're totally, completely getting smushed. Um, and this this was a make-or-miss league sort of thing for the Cowboys. And this is why I'm not that worried about the Cowboys and what happened in this game is... In the way that they talk about the NBA being a make-or-miss league when it comes to your three-pointers and how determinate that is of the outcome here, 
the NFL is more of a make or miss league on third and fourth down than we like to think. They before the final two drives, then when the Cowboys scored those two, those final two touchdowns, and with the um, two point conversions, they were one for nine on third down and zero for four on fourth down. Hard to sustain drives. You need a lot of big plays, and they were not getting the big plays, obviously, and they were not able to sustain things on third down and fourth down either. And the big element here when we talk about a player being missing is, you know, the on-off splits for Dak Prescott continue to be dramatic when we talk about Tyron Smith missing time. Um, His replacement gave up nine pressures in this game. So his availability is something to monitor. If you are going to monitor injury situations, I'm normally not going to overplay offensive line. I think it's something to keep on your radar as opposed to weigh everything in. And if Dallas starts getting bid down, you may look to play them going forward. Although I think this was game was really about the Broncos not getting the respect that they deserve for having played as well as they had for the fact that they had put up a couple of uh, stinkers in some recent games. But we'll take that 10-point underdog with a 14-point victory. We will take that to the bank. Uh, next game here is the Patriots at the the New England Patriots at the Carolina Panthers. New England wins 24 to 6. New England was a three-point favorite. The adjusted score here, I have 15-11 Patriots. So much, much closer. This is probably the biggest difference. Differential. I don't know if it's leg- I don't know if it's like numerically the biggest difference between the adjusted score and the actual score, but it's the biggest difference in my mind, perception-wise. So the headline here is this is the end for Darnold and the Patriots are returning to the playoffs. My alternative headline would be, the Patriots got a long way to go. I don't think that they are that rock-solid playoff team that people may be thinking about them right now. Uh, the Patriots, you know, they opened, I believe, at a three as three-point favorite and went down to 1.5 um, and then kind of came back. They are not the better team than a lot of other teams or people may perceive them as being better. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm thinking of a different game here. So this is the Patriots-Browns game, and I think this is illustrative of my concerns about how the Patriots are being viewed out in the market. So the Patriots open as a three-point favorite because people are like, oh, look, it's Patriots. Patriots are here. Patriots are here. I mean, the Sharps immediately bid that down to one and a half, which is significant because we're getting off of the three, right? And the Patriots are not a better team than the Browns. At three points, even though it's at home, you're almost saying that they are a better team. I don't think anyone's giving three points as a as a home field advantage when that's been whittled down so much over time. So initially, the markets were setting this, uh, the market makers were setting this as the Patriots being a better team. That quickly got hit, uh, which I think was a very, very appropriate. The Browns are definitely a better team than the Patriots. Uh, they have a negative two of their average adjusted score differential, negative two points. They have been worse than their opponents. And their five and four team, which is, if you look at this, they have the, their adjusted score differential is 24th in the NFL right now. And they've played the 27th hardest strength of schedule so far. They haven't had a hard schedule. They haven't performed particularly well. The Patriots. I know they've had the victory against the Chargers, which I think really turned people's head quite a bit. And now this victory, which looked completely dominant against the the Panthers, but underlying, maybe not as good as we think. The success rate for this Patriots offense, and they were not being stressed 
that much. Uh, 37% versus 38% for the Panthers. So it wasn't that big of a difference. But the EPA per play, again, negative for the Patriots. So like a 27th, 28th percentile type of outcome. But it was only a second percentile for the the Panthers. It was about as bad as it could possibly get. And the defensive domination, you know, largely on turnovers. So the Patriots were okay running the ball. They were really poor passing the ball. You had a strip sack for uh, Mac Jones. And in this game, the pass rate for the Patriots was 34%. Yes, they were up in this game, but it wasn't a dominant enough score differential for that to be anywhere close to their pass expectation. Their expectation was 54%. So they were 20% under expectation. That is will win you games in these circumstances where you're getting the turnovers, the other team is completely killing itself. If the other team is not killing itself, the Patriots, to me, have not shown enough to think that they can consistently win games on offense where this is exactly what they want to do, uh, run the ball and not put Mac Jones into difficult circumstances, uh, which he has had sometimes. I mean, it was it was difficult against the, the Bucks, and he came through and looked pretty good. So I'm not saying he can't do it, but I'm not confident necessarily in this one. Um, because Darnold, we saw the three turnovers. We saw Robbie Anderson yelling at him during the game, just ugly all around for Darnold. He is getting an MRI, which you'd be surprised how often the results of this are week to week. And you're going to miss the next week when it happens to correspond with the guy potentially getting pulled, you know, helps take away a lot of those questions as to who should be the starter, who shouldn't be the starter, what's going on when you can just say, Hey, look, he's injured. That's the, we have to take him out now. And then it'll be a wait and see on that type of injury going forward. Um, and the, you know, a crossroads, right? A crossroads with, with Darnold here. He's owned 19 million ish next year on the guaranteed fifth year option. So they're between a rock and a hard place here. They're between cutting bait on Darnold, thinking about a new option next season, and then carrying a $19 million cap hit for a backup who they cannot trade, no way they can trade him, or eating more salary and then and then trying to trade him, or after they ate salary for Teddy Bridgewater, who looks better, uh, or they're stuck with Darnold, who quite possibly could be just a bottom five quarterback no matter who he's playing with. And uh, respect to Adam Gase. Adam Gase is now moving up from the the seller, the, the dregs of the coaching ranks every single bad game that Darnold has going forward. Okay, Falcons at Saints. Uh, Low-key, one of the best rivalries in football and one of the best games of the weekend. 27-25, Falcons. Uh, the Saints were a six-and-a-half-point favorite. My adjusted score is 30-24, so a little bit wider to the Falcons. My The headline would be Falcons now in the playoff mix as the seventh seed currently. My alternative headline would be, you know, the Saints are still firmly, firmly in the playoff mix. Firmly probably in the playoffs, which maybe lost a little bit in this game. People might be writing them off with the loss of Jameis and everything else that's going forward. I mean, let's again, let's turn to our friends in the desert with their implied probabilities. And let's say, despite the Falcons technically having a half a game edge on the seventh seed here, the final seed, they only have a 29 implied playoff probability versus a 70% implied playoff probability for the Saints. So a huge differential. One team likely not making it despite being in. Another team likely making it. And 
what we have to think about now is, you know, are the Falcons Falcons turning things around? Is Matt Ryan turning things around, or are we just experiencing a bit of randomness in the ordering of events so far this season? They still have a negative 5.8 adjusted point differential on the season with one of the easiest strength of schedules. So they haven't been good overall, despite the fact that Ryan has come to life recently. So I'd still be a little bit skeptical of them going forward, although I think it's funny that we're getting this positive randomness and positiveness with this Falcons team that everyone was excited about in prior years and had kind of written off this year after the first few weeks. And now they're getting victories that could have been losses in some of these games, like this one where it came down to the wire, despite a bigger lead early in the game, where that was never happening before. So the moment everyone was off the Falcons bandwagon, now they're turning things around and are playing much, much better this year. Okay, before I hit the last handful of games here, which includes some of the big bet wrap-ups for me, the best bet wrap-ups for me, let's talk about Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead of both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need-to-know for your financial future? Now you can ask about both, and every football or financial question you earn earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, Check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, I'm going to hit this one pretty quickly. Raiders at Giants, 23-16. The Giants pulled this off. The Raiders were a three-point favorite in this game. My adjusted score is a perfectly even 21-21. So the headline, Raiders aren't playoff material. And my alternative headline is, the underlying numbers for the Raiders were pretty good in this game. I'm going to focus more on them as a potential playoff team than I'm going to focus on the Giants. You know, Carr had negative 15 EPA from interceptions uh, and a strip sack in this one. He was only sacked once, and it ended up being a strip sack. So there's definitely some bad luck here. You could say these things tend to happen to Carr, but it's not like Daniel Jones, who also had a strip sack, where Daniel Jones is good for one strip sack per game, almost. Uh, the Raiders also missed a 25-yard field goal, which is as gimme as a field goal can could possibly be. But the success rate numbers for the Raiders, as I mentioned, the underlying numbers, um, they had success rates in the 50s, but it was the four combined turnovers. And the Raiders' pass rush, again, this is an underlying number, which I like to see for them in particular. It's a, it's a stickiest, one of the stickiest defensive statistics you can have. 46% pressure rate in this game. 35% fast pressure rate. That means pressures in two and a half or less seconds. That's huge. That continues. That was a problem for the Giants without Andrew Thomas and, of course, with Daniel Jones, who likes to hold the ball. But it wasn't, they didn't, it wasn't able to force as many turnovers as they would have liked to equal out what happened on the other side. So you kind of got to chalk this one up. I think you can kind of flush this game for the Raiders and say, we're still an underlying pretty good team. Deshaun Jackson, if he can stay healthy, is really going to add an element to that offense that Henry Ruggs uh, being out is took away. 
So I still think the Raiders are interesting. I'm not going to bury them at all after this one. And I, I don't mind how they looked underneath. But of course, losing the game is very important for their playoff standing. Okay, next, back to our best bets here. And the biggest cover of them all, and that is the Buffalo Bills at the Jacksonville Jaguars. 9-6 Jacksonville. The Jaguars win. 14.5 point underdogs. My adjusted score is 12-11 Jacksonville. So closer, but again, very, very low score. Poor offenses here. This is a huge winner for us. 14.5 points on the best bet for the Jaguars. The headline in this game is going to be Weird win for the Jaguars. You know, Bills just flush this game and move on. No, nothing, to, nothing to worry about here. Still may be the best team in the NFL. My alternative headline is, Bills offense is firmly on my radar here. My big rationale for this game was that the Bills offense maybe isn't as good as we might think. There are struggles here. Josh Allen in particular is struggling. And when Josh Allen pretty much is the Bills offense, they pass it so much. In this game, that was definitely true. They passed the ball 85% of the time, 15% over expectation. They were using Cole Beasley in the backfield here. They have no faith, and they were not able to do anything in that running game. Poor efficiency in the running game. Um, Josh Allen's down to 19th in his PFF grade on the season, and he's out of the top 10 when it comes to EPA per play. Yet he's somehow still tied the last time I saw for the lead in MVP odds, which makes no sense to me other than quarterback wins, and they did not even get the win in this one. And in some ways, this could have been, you know, they had a better success rate than the Jaguars. So maybe you should say, well, why weren't they favored in this game? Well, the, the Jags had some unlucky plays. Carlos, Carlos Hyde fumbled around the 20-yard line of the Bills in this game, and they missed two straight field goals, although it only counted as one miss. Uh, they missed a field goal, and there was a penalty, I believe, so they kicked another field goal, and then they missed that too. Two pretty makeable uh, field goals there. And Lawrence, you know, he was bad again. I don't know what exactly to say. I know that we're starting to dip into the Justin Fields apologists are now pivoting to Trevor Lawrence. Um, and I saw that coming a little bit that that was a potential. There's a, definitely some overlap between those two camps. I mean, if we look at the grading, I mean, Trevor Lawrence had a 52 grade. Poor, again, he's, he's been poor on his grades and he's been on his EPA, but even his EPA, negative uh, 0.15 per play, which again is bad. And I know he had a tough matchup here against the Bills, and I know maybe he's not getting as much as you would like from his teammates and so on and so forth. He had another game, but, you know, 4.5 yards per attempt, it's pretty rough. Pretty rough, no matter how you slice it. But he did have a 16% dropped pass rate when it comes to catchable targets. That's really, really high. So I think there's more to this, Apol, the apologensia going on here for uh, Trevor Lawrence than there was for some of those Justin Fields games. At the same time, we got to see a little bit more from Lawrence the rest of the season. And I'm hoping to see that. We can't just say, let's wait until they rework everything in the offseason and get rid of Urban Meyer and so on and so forth. Okay, well, we're going straight to another. Wow, I'm going back to back to back here for our best bets. And that is the most disgusting game of the day, the Houston Texans at the Miami Dolphins. 17-9 Miami. Miami ended up a four and a half point favorite. My adjusted score 
24-18 Miami. So a little bit higher score for both of those teams. And again, winner, winner. We had it at five and a half though. So did not get closing value on this one, closing line value on this one. And that's because I wasn't paying enough attention. I didn't realize that Tua could maybe miss this game. Now, the headline here is this is a disgusting game. My alternative headline is, yes, sir, disgusting. Uh, I'm, I'm not arguing with that at all. And the most interesting thing to me is not that like that Tua couldn't play and what does that mean for him going forward, but the most interesting thing for me is this opened at six and a half. Terod Taylor was announced as playing. It moved down to five and a half. Maybe there was some something floating out there as – um, Tua might not play, and that played into that move a little bit because I think people knew that that Taylor was going to be back. And then it moved down to four and a half. I'd be a little concerned if I were Tua that when you're going to Brissett, who I think is is kind of garbage. I know some other people may have a better opinions. For some reason, Brissett is, is, is hacked our grading system like some other guys. He had a 77 grade in this game. The fact that it didn't move more was kind of an indictment on Tua to me that he's not really seeing as being that different from Jacoby Brissett in this game. Didn't move through any major numbers there, going from five and a half down to four and a half. Um, my thesis on this game, which I'll, I'll do a little congratulations here. I'm giving myself, for those who can't see on YouTube, um, or watching YouTube, I'm patting myself on the back. My thought in this game was that Tyrod was weirdly overrated going into this game based upon how he had played Earlier in the season, he had a 41.4 grade here, negative two EPA per play. He had almost 20 EPA in turnover. So some of that is bad luck. You know, you're not going to expect someone like him to have that that bad of a performance. But we were treating him too much like he was someone who may need to be respected coming into this game. And he's going to turn around this team. And I think if you had a tanking variable for as far as how the players are thinking, if you're going to pick a team, the Texans were the team that you would flip it on to say, these guys are probably checked out at this point, and I would not blame them at all. Um, so again, Brissett, I mentioned the 77 grade, a 42% fast pressure rate, which is just an absolutely in- enormous number that they were getting pressure in 2.5 or less seconds, 42% of his dropbacks, and that just hurts, hurts, hurts for Tua going forward. We talk about evaluation and the difficulty of doing that for some people. I do think it's kind of difficult with Tua to do evaluation when we're talking about that insane of a pressure rate. And the Dolphins, their biggest failure in this rebuild has been trying to draft and build that offensive line where I think they might need to hit free agency a bit more here and build around that to get some competent pieces because it's really, really going to hamper, especially someone like Tua who does not necessarily have the off-platform arm talent and really isn't as athletic as some people may think to work around an offensive line like that. Okay, let's go into one of my favorite games of the day. Um, And although not favorite by the results of best bets, and that is the Los Angeles Chargers at the Philadelphia Eagles, 27-24 Chargers, the Chargers were a one-point favorite going into this game. This is a loser for us, 3-1 and one on the week. Uh, we got a little closing line value, though, because I had it. Well, I would have originally bet it at 2.5, and, and it went down to 1.5, and, and then it went down to 1. But again, we're between the threes here. And this one was a loser, and I'm just because I have, I had Philly as actually being slightly better according to my adjusted scores in this game. Um, actually, I forgot to write down the exact amount here. Let me get that exact amount for you guys. Uh, I had it being 24 to 23, Philly being a little bit better. But that includes success rates and 
EPA on that final Chargers drive where they were just basically running out the clock at a certain point to kick the field goal. So when I make adjustments for that, it ends up being basically even or the Chargers better by a point or two. So kind of where it came out. I'm not going to call this a bad beat, despite the fact that getting it at plus one and a half versus basically an even game, you could say that. Um, this this is not close to that sort of, of range. I think basically you got to just tip your cap to Justin Herbert. I think my thesis on this game was good. This was my last of the different best bets that I mentioned because I had the lowest edge on it. So maybe I pushed the envelope a little too much recommending it. But I think the thesis was good. The thesis was the Eagles were going to be able to Eagles match up versus the Chargers defense running the ball would be very, very profitable. And it was. They ran like crazy. They ran with a high efficiency rate. And I also thought, you know, Herbert versus Hertz maybe isn't as big of the downgrade as you might think. But the problem is you just got to tip your cap to what Justin Herbert did in this game. 93% completion percentage. They forced him to do the quick game, and he executed extremely well. 38 of 41 for 356 yards. His his A dot, his average depth of target was only 5.7, but he had a 9.4 yards per attempt. So extremely efficient doing what he was doing there. No turnover worthy plays. Um, because of no no mistakes, again, no sacks. So there was just nothing that he did wrong offensively. So because of that, while the headline is Her- Herbert's back to looking elite, my alternative headline is gonna be, you know, Hertz is kind of getting into that. Definitely not elite, but maybe adjacent to elite category in my mind, which is maybe overstating it a little bit. But nobody seems to be noticing this. I'm saying at worst, he's average. But no one's really noticing this for Jalen Hurts. And again, another loss here is probably going to, isn't going to help his image going forward. The Eagles played that bend, don't break defense, and it worked to a degree. They did get two stops on the first two fourth downs that the Chargers attempted, which put the Chargers at only converting two of their last seven fourth downs after having converted nine of 10 on offense to start the season. But props to Brandon Staley. I thought he might've got spooked a bit at the end of the game when he called, when they called a timeout trying to draw the team off sides on fourth and less than a yard, but he did go for it. He did convert it and he did run out the clock before kicking the game winning field goal. Again, as I mentioned, both offenses were good. 51% success rate for the chargers on a, low a dot offense 48% for the Eagles and that was on a high a dot offense which you think that would be more difficult to do although they ran the ball much much more often uh they were only a 42% pass rate negative 17% as far as versus expectation um Hertz remember I mentioned 9.4 yards per attempt for Herbert 9.5 for Hertz but when you do it in a chunkier fashion, you're going to open yourself up to the potential for um, drives ending when you can't when you can't complete it. 13.3 a dot yard a dot. So that was huge. Um, so if you look at Hertz now again, I want to just say Hertz is 12th best PFF grade. Go, again, going back to my ter- alternative headline, he's between Derek Carr and Lamar Jackson in that regard. Two guys who are getting tons and tons of praise this season. Now, his EPA per play is a bit lower at 19th, but when we think about the players that he has, he has Devontae Smith, who ha- who's playing well. But again, a rookie, Devontae Smith. Jalen Rager looks like a lost cause. You have Quez Watkins. You have Dallas Goddard, who's, who's a, a good tight end, don't get me wrong. And you have a decent, pretty good, above-average offensive line. So he doesn't have the worst circumstances, but it's definitely not the best either. 
and he's able to hang in these games where it was really the defense that just couldn't stop it. There were just not many drives in this game. You could say, oh, they only put up 24 points, but they each offense only really had seven drives apiece. So both of these offenses were efficient with the ball. There were long drives in this one, too. If you remember the fact that the Chargers, I think, started from their own two on one drive. The Eagles started from their own two after stopping. The Chargers on a fourth down. So both offenses were not put in great situations, also in the difficulty of scoring in those situations. So the fact that it's 27-24, the teams are really a little bit better as far as their offensive performance. Okay, Cardinals at Niners, 31-17, Arizona Cardinals. The Niners were a 5.5 favorite. My adjusted score is 33-22, to which is not that different. Uh, from them and then the headline I'm going to say is is this Trey Lance time is it Trey Lance time my alternative headline is Jimmy G was not the problem and the defense implodes and Shanahan is now on notice by a lot of people so that's maybe a little bit less of an alternative headline because people are picking up on this I made a joke when it came to Shanahan that I've been skeptical of him since he first got there and they were trading up to draft Joe Williams after he was off of their board and then the following offseason, they're giving this enormous contract to Jarek McKinnon. And then, you know, they're trading up for Dante Pettis and putting him in the doghouse and so forth and so on. People are starting to catch on to the fact that Shanahan, while a great play caller, a great offensive mind, maybe not the best as far as having a measured, diligent, disciplined approach when it comes to player evaluation and personnel. I mean, what's really been difficult for him Going into this week, Trey Sermon, they trade up for Trey Sermon in the third round. You could say that Trey Sermon is their fifth string running back right now. If it wasn't for injuries, he would be, be behind Raheem Mostert. He's behind Elijah Mitchell, obviously. They have Jermichael Hasty, who's out there. And now Jeff Wilson Jr. was active, and Trey Sermon was not. That's four running backs, right? And if you throw... Um, Use check into the mix. Maybe you could say he's six string <laughs> as far as that backfield is concerned. You're trading up for a six string guy. Come on. That's that's insane. What are you doing there? What are you seeing before that you're not seeing now? Uh, and then Brandon Ayuk could be the other one. Now, Ayuk had a fumble that was bad in this game. But if you saw the talent that he displayed with the way he was able to climb the ladder and make plays in this game, the way he was able to get open sometimes, he is their most talented player on offense I mean, you could say George Kittle is their most talented player who also had a fumble in this game. Um, but forget about Kittle for a second. Let's set Kittle aside. Ayuk's the most talented player there, and he's been in this doghouse. Sometimes you have to put your pride aside and put the player in. Some guys are not going to respond in the way that you want, and you don't doghouse your most talented guys. And I think a lot of people are starting to catch on to this thing, and I made a joke that it was like when people start to love your favorite indie band. And you get annoyed by it. I'm getting slightly annoyed by people jumping on the hater, hating on Shanahan when I've been doing it. I've been here for years, people. I've been here for years. Recognize that. Um, what else was I going to say? When it comes to the Jimmy G, I think the Jordan Love situation, the Jordan Love implosion, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I think that's starting to make people think there's no point in resting, not resting, there's no point in redshirting your quarterback so why shouldn't Trey Lance be starting now? I mean, the thing is, Jimmy was not that bad in this game. I know everyone hates Jimmy G, and I mentioned this last week how I thought that he was going to probably be the starter for the rest of the season. Maybe I'm wrong here, and if you get scapegoated, you know, it, it, this is a game that you could get scapegoated when you lose to Colt McCoy and no DeAndre Hopkins 
on the Cardinals. But if you look at this game, the 49ers offense, 48% success rate to only 44 for the Cardinals. Way too many big plays were given up by the 49ers defense. Uh, Jimmy G, was he was forced to pass it on 81% of dropbacks. Okay, he was not put in an easy situation here, and he still had a high success rate offense here. Um, it could have been a total implosion if this was Trey Lance in this game, easily. Jimmy finished with a 79.6 grade. Uh, remember those two fumbles that I mentioned? Those were the biggest negative plays for the offense, both of them by receivers after the ball was caught, Kittle and Ayuk. And the Jimmy did have an interception, but it came in the fourth quarter when the 49ers' win probability was 1%. So it went from 1% to 0%. Yes, interception. Yes, turn a worthy play. No, I'm not counting it, really, in this game. It doesn't really not count in my mind. Uh, the 10% sack rate he had wasn't ideal, but again, you know, the defense, the entire game could kind of pin back their ears and rush the quarterback knowing that Jimmy had to throw it the entire time. The 49ers only had a 10% play action rate. Jimmy had to just go back there and sling it, and he did okay in considering the circumstances. Um... And again, we come to Shanahan, it's the game management stuff. Oof. Did not go for two, uh, down 31 to 13, which would have cut it to a 16-point lead. So they could conceivably have been within two touchdowns and two two-point conversions. So a two-score game, quote unquote, two scores on that one. Uh, they punted it down 17 points. I know it was fourth and 13, but there's pretty much like in the fourth quarter, you're just giving you just have to go for it on, on these sorts of plays. And yes, the game may, quote-unquote, end there. You're not going to get extend the game, but you got to go for it sometimes. I just don't understand what, what he's doing on these things. So you combine that with the Sermon angle, with the Ayuk angle, with the one winning season, everyone's starting to jump on the Shanahan thing. I mean, I think he's bought himself enough rope where there's little to no chance that he gets let go at the end of the season. There's no way you can, like, demote him but he may start to lose some of the personnel say. I think that would be the logical move for the 49ers to lose some of the personnel say. Because remember, after that Super Bowl run, they extended him again, you know, six years on that contract. We're only a couple of years into that six-year contract. So they got a long way to go there. And um, 49ers, they still got a chance to turn things around and come back the rest of the season. So we'll see if that can end up happening. All right, last game here, and uh, as I alluded to, the Jordan Love game. The Packers at the Chiefs, 13-7. The Chiefs win. The Chiefs were a seven-point favorite. Do not cover on that. My adjusted score was 14-13, Kansas City. The headline, Jordan Love was awful, so the Packers are maybe a best team in the league with Aaron Rodgers. My alternative headline is, still waiting to see on this Packers offense and defense, even with Aaron Rodgers on offense. Uh, this was the first truly great defensive game that the Packers defense has had, and the Chiefs are struggling. But I still think it's a great game. Uh, so if you look at this, the Steelers are the only other team that they've held under a 50th percentile success rate. And that includes teams like the Lions, the 49ers, the Bears, and the Washington football team that they've played this year. Uh, yes, they have injury issues. Jay Alexander's, uh, Alexander's missed time. Darius Smith has missed time. But I still need to see a little bit more before I'm starting to think that they are really on the level as some of these other teams that have both sides of the ball working for them. They've won multiple games this year where, according to my adjusted scores, they were the worst team. So I'm not getting too far out ahead of this now. 
And the, the Kansas City offense, I know you were put on my radar last week after a couple of bad performances. Now you are on notice. You're officially on notice. If I have to cancel the Kansas City Chief offense, I'm going to be – there's nothing worse for me as someone who is a Patrick Mahomes stand and very biased towards the Chiefs. But I got to put you on notice after this one. 15th percentile success rate and efficiency in this game. Would have lost it if not for 12 EPA, 12-point advantage in special teams. Muffed punt, two missed field goals for the Packers. Um, just another bad game for Mahomes, an under 50 graded game. Although it was even a worse game for Love. I know there's been a comparison between some of their stats where Love could look a little bit better, but it was a 30 grade for Love, and he was just missing all over the place. My joke with him is that everything looks really good other than where the ball goes. I think he looks good moving in the pocket. I think he looks good aesthetically, the way he's able to throw off of the run, but Accuracy, accuracy, accuracy is an issue. And when this goes back to that development conversation, whether you sit the season or not, I don't think it matters. I think if you're a good quarterback, you're going to be good. If you're a bad quarterback, you're going to be bad. So I wouldn't take what Jordan Love is doing here and then say, oh, we shouldn't rest guys. I mean, we shouldn't uh, redshirt guys for one season. Just as much as I wouldn't have taken what Patrick Mahomes did and said you should always redshirt people. I think it all depends on the circumstance. I think it's more about surrounding cast than it is about development or any of these other things that we want to talk about. Our ability to develop these quarterbacks is much, much lower than we probably think. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Drop a review. Watch on YouTube. Do all that sort of stuff. Also, uh, you can drop me a note, Kevin Cole. Kevin.cole at pff.com or at Kevin Cole PFF on Twitter. I appreciate everything. I'll be back at you on Friday with some more best bets. Hopefully we'll keep our winning streak going on that. Otherwise, I will talk to you then.